0: Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. Any of y'all done family photos lately? Let me see your hands. Anybody done some family photos? Yeah, those are fun. I used to not like family photos. I still It's not like my favorite thing, but... uh, uh, I, I've gotten more uh, enjoyment out of them, I guess you could say, the older I get. Uh, I like to see uh, the, the, the way they all turn out, you know. And uh, on my iPad, I have last year's family photos. as like the wallpaper and the difference between the way my boys looked then and they, they look now. is just so different. So that's, that's one of the cool things about family photos. But you know, if you've ever done that, they're not all fun. They're, they're, there's some parts of it. That are not super enjoyable like we have this picture of the boys and um in this most recent set and they're all hugging one another and they're all like their faces are against each other and grinning and they all look all cute and everything um and and that's cool that's a cool picture to have it's one of my favorites but we know because we were there that they were groaning the whole time uh, like oh hurry up um, that's what they were doing and then as soon as the photographer said you can stop. They pushed each other, you know, and, and fell over sideways because they, they just could not stand the idea of touching one another um, for just a few moments there. And so, so that's a fun stage. I mean, that happens. Another part is if you have multiple kids, all of my kids have gone through this stage, one of them's in it right now, where they just forget how to smile. Y'all, y'all know this? It's like at one moment they can smile just fine, and then all of a sudden you point a camera at them, and it's like they're biting the air. They're like, it's like we're standing behind the camera going uh hey smile with your eyes smile with your eyes smile right you know that sort of thing and that helps that that brings out family love and stuff and so that's cool. There's another aspect of uh, family photos, which is, which is fun, is like trying to find five outfits that complement one another, but don't match, can't match. You got to complement one another. It's got to look good. It's got to go with the sceneries and it's got to go with skin tones. And for our family, since we're full, um, full skin tone range there, uh, that's got to work into the situation. And so there's all kinds of things. So it's a feat that Jackie's able to find all that because one of us complains a lot about what it is that she makes me Wear. so there's that whole element to this family photo but then you get them you get them and you put them on canvas you can now put them on metal you, can, you change your uh, f- profile images and all that sort of stuff because what you have in your hands now is a picture perfect family right that's, and that's really the goal you want this picture-perfect family. You want this image of your family loving one another for crying out loud and looking like you enjoy one another's presence so you can hang it on your walls and remind each other of why we're stuck together. You know? So that's one of the things that we enjoy. And we love the picture-perfect family. In Colossians chapter 3, he ends the story, he ends the letter with a picture-perfect family. That's what he does. He goes through all of the, the characters in a family and he describes them and says, this is the dad and this is the mom and these are the children. And there's this lifted up idea of what a perfect family would look like. And a lot of us bring in different baggage with that and, and challenges with that. And we'll talk a little bit here in just a moment, but it is helpful. It is helpful for us to see. And in the same way that we look at the photos of families knowing full well That there's no picture-perfect family on social media or or printed on a giant canvas hanging above a a fireplace that is actually picture-perfect. There is this image, this aspiration, this illustration of the way that it should be. And so whether or not you're 10 years from being married or you're 10 years after the children have left the home, whichever way it is, there is this aspiration, there's this image that should be lifted up. And it should be a good thing for us to explore this morning, all right? So let's pray together, and that's exactly what we will do. God, thank you for your words. Thank you for the encouragement. God, I know that this topic is hard, and uh, there'll be words that I say that are hard to hear or even hard to deal with, wrestle with. So I pray that we would be honest about that, that we would allow for some grace. God, that we would not read our modern sensitivities into an ancient book, but that we would be challenged to live a life in the way that you have created us to live. And as much as the gospel changes our hearts, as much as the gospel changes our churches and our communities, may we also realize that the gospel affects, changes, revolutionizes our our home family. And may that be a real difference that is seen here today. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. So in Colossians, like I said, we're going to end the series today in chapter 3, and I'll read that in just a second. But I want to, before getting to that point, I just want to share with you that, for those of you who weren't here for the entire series, that Colossians, this ending part about the family is not spoken in a vacuum. That it is spoken within the context of the, the bigger letter in Coloss, Colossians and to the Colossi church there and in, in, in all of Scripture. Philip Yancey once said that uh, the Bible is about God's desire to win back his family. So this whole idea of family is really this overarching theme throughout scripture that starts way back in the garden and when God creates and establishes the family and goes all the way through to the end of time. And so these words are not spoken as much as they will be listed out. They're listed out in Colossians and we'll look at them one at a time. They're not a list of standards that you cannot possibly reach. They are a description, like I said, of a picture-perfect family that we should aspire to. Towards In Colossians, this book is primarily written with the idea of reconciliation, that we are uh, conceived as enemies to the crown, and that God has made it possible and has offered to you the invitation that you would lay down arms and no longer fight against God, but instead would be redeemed or reconciled into the family. And that really is the idea. That in Colossians 1 verse 20, when the Bible says that Jesus, the Son of God, uh, died in order to reconcile everything unto himself, that it was the idea that you are militants against the Creator and you lay down arms, and it's not just that you are no longer an enemy, but now you are considered a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister, that you are now family. That's that reconciliation that's happening there and that action creates within us the death of the old self that submits to the standards of this world that's backbiting and eating of one another and consuming of our own and self-centered to the new standard in which is sacrificial and is Christ-like, is like Jesus. That to live in this standard is to actually die and to die to that standard is to actually die. Live, And this has ramifications not only into our attitudes, but also into our actions and the way that we will treat one another in the church. And that church then would affect the community. But then it also makes sense, of course, that it would affect our home relationships, that it would affect the way that we live in our lives. And so that's what this whole text is dealing with. That's what Colossians is about. And he ends, he caps it off, um, honestly, with a bunch of thank yous, and I'll see you later. But right before that, he says this whole idea of the family. Here around our church, we make a big deal out of the second family. It's more, and I want to be very clear with that, it's more than just marketing, it's more than just branding. We really do believe that the church is primarily a family. We're not an organization, we're not an institution. We are a family that relates to one another with familial ties and rules. and and responsibilities one to another. And so it's important for us to understand that that's what we mean by family. However, we understand that when we use the terminology of family, that we have to deal with the idea of your blood family or your marriage family. And that can be challenging and it can be hard because, and this is really why we have to get at this, the second family will only be as strong or as capable as our first families are within our homes and individually. So we have to wrestle with that. And let me also say that we are unapologetically speaking about an ideal scenario. And let me unpack the unapologetic word. The scripture does explain what the family is by God's design. God, the creator of the universe, created the family in a certain way with certain characters and in a certain model. That's what God designed, and he's the creator, and so he gets to do that. And so the Bible is unapologetic about that. It says this is what God says, and it does not apologize. Furthermore, myself and this church agrees with God, all right? Um, Because it's in your best interest to agree with the almighty creator of heaven and earth, but also because he is God. And so I want to be very careful with this. As much as I love you, and as much as I and concerned and care for our community and for the individuals, and I know that you're smart and you come to your own conclusions and things like that. I I am not gonna whitewash this or make this softer for modern ears to hear. This is what the Bible says, and that is what I will uh, preach, and that is the standard by which we will um, chase, okay? So that's what's going on there. I also know and recognize that when we bring up the issue of family, It is challenging for some people because you're going to bring into it wounds and baggage. Some of you have and have had really bad dads, right? Fathers that were not godlike. They thought they were gods and they were not Christ-like in their approach to things. Some of you have uh, wayward or rebellious children, or some of you had absent mothers, or whatever. You had these really um, maybe horrible situations that you came from in your families that you had no control over and that you were powerless to do. And so when we bring up family, you bring into it this feeling of guilt or shame, maybe, or, or a pain, and so you walk into the conversation already trying to listen through all of that internal noise, and so I want to say at the very outset, you don't have to bring that into the situation. I know that it's there, and I respect that it is there. I, I do, but what you have to understand about Scripture, and what you have to understand about god and the way that he is communicating to us is that it is not his intent and he says so it is not his intent that you would look at the ideals of scripture or the standards or the or or the concepts that god teaches in scripture and feel guilt upon yourself in fact it's very clear that in the gospel that god jesus has taken the guilt upon him and that you are free from that That you're free from looking in the past and saying, I haven't met the standard and therefore I can't meet the standard in the future. No, what Colossians is arguing is that in the past you didn't meet it and we know you didn't meet it. Everybody didn't meet whatever the standard is in the way that we speak, in the way that we relate, in the way that we run our families. We know that you didn't do that. Nobody did. But in Christ, there's a new you that is now not only capable, but enabled and encouraged to chase after the standard, to hold it as um, the compliment, the way that we are supposed to be, right? So it is not supposed to be condemning. It is supposed to be encouraging, all right? And so you have to hear it that way. And so I I think it's true to hold both things. I have past hurts and pains and wounds, and I will explore this hearing it with an open mind from what God says to me as an individual. You're also going to notice that the ideals within Scripture are given to us. There's an underlying thought and, t- and teaching from Jesus and God. And um, those teachings, though, may not look exactly like your family. So, for example, it's going to mention fathers in this text. And, but you may be um, uh, like a blended family. Or you may have custody of your children at different times. Or you may be a stepdad or something like that. And so sometimes we look at it and go like, I know what that's describing and I'm a little different. So it doesn't apply to me. And that's not true. It is a little bit different, but the underlying principles are the same. And so they apply to you in your own um, particular way. The word of God does not change, but the application does affect you in different ways. So with all of that said, all right, there's a ton. There's a ton there, right? And I haven't even gotten to the part that's going to make some of you mad, right? And so um, let's read it, all right? So Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and and, and not for people. Knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Jesus Christ. For the wrongdoers will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done. And there is no favoritism. Masters. Chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. All right, so looping back, wives submits, all right? So I feel like this text should come with like trigger warning. Some of these words are going to make you um, uncomfortable. A lot of them are going to make you uncomfortable, particularly in our modern sensitivities. There's going to be these ideas that make you uncomfortable, but um, I'm just going to tell you exactly what it says. You can deal with it as you want. Wives, submit. First two words are triggering, all right? Wives, meaning a female in the home. By God's design, the home, the, the, the family is a, a, a grown woman and a grown man come together in love and admiration and trust for one another in order to raise godly children to the glory of God. Whether those are biological children or adopted children, that's God's design for the family. That's what scripture teaches. And so that alone, uh, gender identity and, and the definition of the home is triggering for some people. I get that. I understand that. That's what scripture says. But then furthermore, it then goes on to say, all right, female, now submits. And so that's a that's a dirty word. You're not allowed to say that anymore. And, it, and we don't say that anymore. We have trouble with that word because of the way that we have defined submission. Because primarily in our culture, we think of the idea of submission in the terms of um, some sort of dominating personality, strong personality, and some weak or inferior personality. And that's not what Scripture teaches. There's nothing about submission that is supposed to evoke the idea of weakness, or inferiority. In fact, if you really think about it, the whole concept of submission cannot be done by a person who is weak or inferior. Submission by its definition is the strong leveraging or submitting it to another. So you cannot submit if you do not have your own strength and your own agency and your own intellect. Something about the way that it all got lost in translation throughout the years has communicated to women this idea that submission means that women are weaker, are inferior, are not as strong. And it would be right for the women of our day to stand up and to feel within their heart that that is not accurate. That I am not weak. I am not strong. I am not inferior. And to that I would say, and I believe the scripture backs this, is you are absolutely right. Women are not inferior. They are not weaker. They are not less, all right? That's the truth. That is the reality. In fact, when Scripture teaches us that God looked at man and says, that one needs a helper, he doesn't look at man and says, that one's super strong. Let's get him somebody to make his sandwich. That's not the idea behind what Scripture teaches at all that he was to need a helper, meaning that he by himself could not image the glory of God to the world, but that together they two equals would image the glory of God to the world, that they would reflect who God is and his gospel message to the world. That's what submission is. That is the strong and the beautiful and the intellect all being submitted underneath um, the man for the good or the husband for the good of the family. One commentator the scholar that writes things about the Bible. They put, they said it this way the verb submit does not convey some innate inferiority, but is used for a modest, cooperative demeanor that puts others first. She submits to him. Also, of note, I want to mention this in that text there. If you look at that, um, you can circle the word your. Wives submit to your husband there is nothing in scripture that says why our women in general are to submit to men in general okay that's a lie from satan and it's been preached from pulpits and it's just flat wrong all right it says submit to your husband all right so that's just you know if we're going to follow what the bible says that's what it says Then it says, husband's love. If you read the whole of the Bible, what you will clearly see is that the command or the instruction to love is actually the more demanding command. It is the harder thing to accomplish that we are supposed to love. And again, it's like submission. It's gonna be the same thing when we get to obedience. It's gonna get the same thing when we use the word slave. It's going to be because these words over time, not through any... um, Uh, malicious intent but over time words change in meanings and submission has changed in meaning and so has love the idea of love within our culture means that i do what i love i love who i love it's all self-centered it's what i get out of the equation but love according to scripture and originally and according to uh just Etymology, language is that love means that you are consciously dis- choosing to sacrifice for the good of the other. Now, here's the interesting thing: in Colossi, in this time, in the first century, the idea of the woman being weaker or submitting to the husband, that sort of thing, was not necessarily countercultural. They would have all said, "Yeah, that makes sense. You know, wives submit. That makes sense to me. Right? That's all. That that makes sense." But then when it gets to the husband's love, they would have been like, huh? Because at that point, marriage was a contractual agreement built upon this idea of loose trust in order to produce an heir. It wasn't like first comes love and then comes marriage. It was like she can make babies and I will give those children my uh, kingdom at the, you know, once they're old enough. And especially if they're men. That was the concept of marriage. And so for Paul to instruct from God to say, you are not only to look at her contractually, you're not supposed to look at her at all contractually. You're supposed to look at her and then submit, sacrifice your passions, your plans, your strengths, and even your own physical body for her good. That would have been like revolutionary. It would have been like a Catholic and at a new gate. That was different. That was not at all the way that they would have gone. And then we get to children. Children obey. Now, this one's not nearly as controversial. You know why? Because children aren't in charge of the world. All right? Um moms and dads are. And so that's why we don't like those two and we throw a big fit about it. But if children were in charge, this one would be just as controversial. And I remember this as a child, I remember sitting there and hearing the preacher go on and say stuff like this. And I could just feel, I felt like my parents were just staring at me the whole time, was like children obey. And so if you are a child in the room, I get that. If you are, let's just say a minor, if you are a dependent upon your, your parents, even if you live in dorms, then you should listen to this part right here. Um, the idea of children obey does not, so hear me on this, it does not necessitate the concept of want or desire or understanding. And we know that. When you're a little kid, you know, you you don't understand why mama won't let you eat 12 cookies, all right? She just says you can't. But you want to, and you don't understand and yet she tells you not to you get a little older and you understand that right you you begin you gain understanding later so what i'm saying is this is understanding comes after obedience that you are to obey and in fact it's those times when you feel like I don't want to do this and I'm not sure I understand so your parents will say things like no uh, like like when you go into the street you need to look both ways or um, no you can't date right now or when you do start dating that you should not be with just your um, your your interest in a car parked late at night behind the Baptist Church you shouldn't you shouldn't do that they you may not understand why you certainly may not want to listen to what they're saying there but but, but they have reasons, all right? They have some reasons. It's like when I tell my kids that they can't have social media until they're married with their own insurance, and, and I have my reasons, right? You know, and, and, and I'm honestly telling you this, you know, there's all these conversations all the time about why I won't unlock YouTube off of their phones, and why I won't give them access to Google things, and why I will not let them have social media, and, and what well, my friends are, and why not? I don't understand, and I'm like, look, son, I'm not explaining to you this right now because of your age, but I'm not giving you that, all right? I'm just not. You're just going to have to obey me, or you just have no phone, all right? So that's just the way this works. So... What I'm saying is, then you get into a stage where you're college age, you know, and you are super smart, and I get it. And I'm not even just saying that. I do think you're smart. And you have really great ideas about the world, and I love that, and I wish that the part of me that was so um, ambitious, the way that you all have that right now, I was that way at one time, but then the world just beat it out of me. And I wish that it didn't, you know? I really do. I wish that I was still as ambitious and, and, and the way that you are, you're so smart. But at the same time, you have to, understand that just as you look back at little you and know that your parents were telling you things like naps are great and you fought them on that they're going to tell you things right now they're going to say things like i'm not sure you should buy that house i'm not sure you need two suvs i don't think that he's good for you and you're not going to understand it and at some point you're going to have to just take very heavily what they're saying i'm not saying that you have to listen to all of it because you won't but I'm saying at some point you have to obey. So that's what children obey. The next part there says, fathers do not exasperate your children. And there's a, you know, just to be honest with you, there's verses in the Bible that I wish weren't in there, you know, and fathers not exasperating your children. I'm not sure what else I would do with my children if I didn't exasperate them, right? That's the the basis of our relationship is me messing with them and their friends. This is just... It's what I get up for in the morning, you know. I'm looking for something to mess with them about. And uh, David and I were talking about this text, and um, and uh, we said something along the lines of, "So what? What was something your dad did to you that just drove you crazy?" And and um, for me, my dad, whenever he would wake us up, he'd come in there, and there was five of us, you know come into our rooms and he would reach under the foot of the bed under the covers there and he would grab my big toes and then he would pull me out of the bed until this part of my body was just hanging off of the bed like this and this part was under the covers and then he would leave he thought he was so funny and uh, he just wasn't you know and it just just made me so mad you know and he would do that all the time and he'd grab you and he's so strong and you can't wiggle your toe out of your dad you know and he's, he's giggling down there and it's like dad stop it so that's what we think of. And I asked the boys this morning, I said, hey, he said, what do I do that like, I do it all the time, and it really bothers you. And Amos was like, nothing, I love everything you do. And me and the other two looked at him like, kiss up. And um, then the, the middle one was like, dad, it's too early to think things. And uh, the oldest one was like, when you, when you hug me real hard and you give me wet kisses in my ears. And I was like, son, son, that's just my love. It's overwhelming. And by the way, come here, come here, give you kisses. <laughs> You know, we exasperate our children, but the deal is, the deal is exasperate means to drive them to anger. And as much as we like to talk about the stuff that dads do to young children, um, that's not what it's talking about. Here's where I'm, uh, uh, let's just talk through this for a minute. I think that this happens more when they're older because then they become all these like independent little moral agents and they start having like these weird notions that they can make up their own minds. And we don't want them to. And because we're men, we have a hard time communicating um, feelings. We have a hard time communicating our perspective on things. And so instead of saying, son, I love you and you're scaring me and you make me feel insecure about the decisions I've made in life and I want you to make a better decision in this, what we do is we poke at them and we become overbearing until they have some sort of emotional reaction back to us, and we're so broken, and they're so broken, that that emotional exchange of exasperation and frustration and all that feels like connection. But it's not. It's not. We drove it toward a feeling instead of communicating. And so we've got to get better at that. And you shouldn't do that because Paul said not to do it. All right? So don't exasperate your children. So at that point, he then jumps into this next section. If you're following along, I think it's verse 22. Slaves, obey your human masters. That is and should be jarring to us. That we read the Bible as Americans and, and we read that and it says the word slaves, and so you want Paul at this point to disavow, to, to, uh, to annihilate the concept, to just rip into the concept of slavery. You want him to do that, but he doesn't. He doesn't. And, and, and that's frustrating. And I wish that he did. I wish that he did that. I wish that he did that because, um, as you know, one of my sons is going to grow up in a world and in, in a country That is truly one of the the greatest blessings um, from God in a, a great country. And yet he's going to grow up in this country that is deeply affected by that word and by that concept. Right. So I wish I could just I could just, you know, point to something and say, but not us. But, you know, I wish I could do that. But he doesn't. So we're left to dealing with things. And so to be intellectually honest, we need to understand this just because the scripture doesn't say against something does not by default say that it is for something. There's a lot of things that it doesn't denounce, but it is also not in support of. And I think within our current culture, we're really intellectually lazy on that part, that we want people to be outraged and raging against something. And if they're not, then they're supportive of it. And that's just not true. It's just not true. And then also If you read what Paul is about to write and if you read in the next, in the letter Philemon, which follows Colossians, in fact, Onesimus, a slave, is one of the people that he thanks down in the next section there, is the person that is the uh, main character of the letter to the person Philemon. If you read all of that and you apply all of that, then what Paul does is definitely undermines slavery. He completely undermines it. If early America and the United Kingdom, if Britain, had listened to what Paul actually said, instead of trying to justify what they were doing, their evil, their horrible acts um, by the scripture, then you would not have come up with the same conclusion. They would have not have come up with the same results. And so looking at that, then we have to step away from it and say, okay, we're dealing with our emotions in this. We're dealing with the jarring nature of the words, but then now I have to try to kind of understand the concept behind it. And so one of the things that helps with that is to understand that what Paul is mentioning when he talks about the idea of slavery, and he does use the Greek word slave, when he uses that concept, he is using it in a different way. That slavery most commonly practiced, There were abuses of it, for sure. But most commonly practiced in this time, what he is speaking to in this time, had nothing to do with race. It was economic in its nature. That people would willingly submit themselves into servitude in order to pay off a debt. And then they were released. That was the most common practice of it. Now, you can point to all sorts of historic examples of where it was abused and it was a lot like early America and the British, um, the United Kingdom. And you are right. But that's not what he's talking about. It is not what he's talking about. Um, So both can be absolutely true. This was a common practice that Paul had to deal with. The other thing that you have to keep in mind here is that Paul doesn't talk about the family like a mom and dad and babies and then jump over to this institution of slavery. He's talking about the home. And all of these positions were in the home. They were in the home. These were, a better way for us to understand it without disregarding all that I just said, one way is a household servant. We don't have those, right? Most of you don't have those. However, it is very similar to like a nanny or a house cleaner or somebody that works in your yard. This practice, what he's specifically talking about, not the evil of, of early American slavery. This practice. So if you ever have like a nanny um, that's, that's taking care of your children or something like that and you're like hey is this like your passion do you like wake up every morning and go like you know what i just want to change the diapers of somebody else's kid um if that's if and they're like no i'm paying off a student loan that's exactly what this is all right that's exactly what it is and so to apply that to take the implication out of this for ourselves then we do look at it in terms of employment that if you are employed by somebody, if you are working for somebody, then you ought to sacrifice your own authority and work as if, uh, as if you're always being watched even when you're not being watched. That's the idea that he teaches there. And he jumps straight from there to the idea of masters deal. That masters are to deal justly and that they are to deal kindly. That they are, if there is any time where somebody else, other than um, those who are your blood relatives, are put under your submission, that you are to treat them with justice and kindness. That they are always to be rewarded for their actions and that if there is anything done wrong for them, then uh, they are to be made whole. And if they do anything wrong, then they are to be disciplined or punished in that regard. All right? So that's what justice is. And look, submission is... And justice are words that are hijacked right now um, by our culture. And I want to say, like I said a minute ago, like intellectually um, lazy. But it's not intellectually lazy. It's ign- intellectually dishonest. It's intellectually uh, malignant. It's bad. The way that these words have been hijacked and, and, and used to mean other things. So I want to just tell you this very clearly. Submission and justice and Uh, reconciliation and compassion, those are Bible terms, all right? We have those for like thousands of years before somebody tries to hijack them and brand people in some weird way. We have to have some sort of understanding of what it is. So justly treat one another. At any rate, what Paul is doing is he's breaking down the positions of the family and he's talking about saying, this is an ideal situation in the home speaking specifically to the context of the Colossians, and he's saying, this is the way that it is supposed to look. It should not be revolutionary to any of us. It shouldn't be. I'm always tickled by the people that will come into a Baptist church and hear a Baptist preacher preach on things like gender identity or homosexuality or sexual identity or, or the family or the husband and stuff, and they get mad at me. And they like come to me and they're like, how dare you with these concepts? Listen, I didn't make this stuff up. We've been holding this view for like thousands of years, okay? We have it written down, okay? So I'm not making this up to be mean to anybody. I'm just telling you what it is that God expects of people. That's the truth. That's the reality. And if you have a problem with what I'm saying, and if you're just upset about this, listen, email me. My email is davidr at mysecond.family. <laughs> Don't mention my name. Just say, your preaching stinks, all right? And that'd be fine, all right? And I'll deal with that appropriately later. So that's the way that scripture breaks down. And so here's what I wanna do. I wanna just make some observations as quickly as I, I can. Um, for some reason, they sped up my time back there. I'm not really over, they just went really fast. All right, and so here's a couple of, um, uh, of things real fast. The first one is this list is not exhaustive, meaning that it says wife submit, but it's not like you can get to heaven and God's like, you weren't really loving to your husband. You're like, yeah, you said submit, so I did that part. You know, that's, you're supposed to love as well. And husbands, it says to love your wife, but you're supposed to submit as well. In Ephesians, it says, um, you know the part where all these people will point to and says, wives submit, you know that part right there? Well, right before it, it says, y'all submit one to another, all right? So husbands submit to your wives, wives submit to your husbands. Husbands, hear me say this, you are supposed to be submitting to your wife. I know that that sounds like crazy or liberal or weird. It's biblical. Submit one to another. Use your strength and your beauty and your passion, your intellect for the good of the family. That's how that breaks down. So it's not an exhaustive list. So you're supposed to obey all sorts of authorities, not just your, not just your, uh, your parents. Um, you should obey your pastor. You should obey your civic leaders. You should obey your teacher, you know, all that kind of stuff. Also, everyone is a moral agent or they have moral responsibility. Think about this. At the time that this was written, wives, women were not considered to be moral agents. They were amoral, meaning it didn't really matter. Okay, men were the moral people who made decisions. They were the ones who decided. Children had no moral agency and slaves or servants surely had no moral agency. And so what Paul does by saying wives submit or children obey is not to push those groups down. Instead, it is to level the whole thing they would have heard that as insanity. But what Paul was saying was, God has a moral expectation for you and you are morally responsible to God by yourself, apart from your husband, apart from your dad. That's what he was, it was a leveling. This text is actually, if you're historically aware at all, a leveling of all of the positions in the family and all of the people and all that. It's to make them all equal before God that's what's going on in the text and so that's interesting also um, they are not a trump card now i understand trump has a different meaning now but remember when we used to say the phrase trump card i i I actually don't know another phrase than trump card okay so they're not a trump card which means this and i want to be clear on this if you're if your husband is abusing you you need not submit yourself to that okay And if you ever hear a pastor or a preacher say something as ridiculous as that, and I know I'm online, so this is going out on the whole world. And so if you're a pastor and you say something that stupid, then you need to know that that is not what scripture is teaching. This is not saying that a woman can be emotionally um, and even physically abusive to her husband and then demand that he have, that he give her sacrificial love. This is not to say that if, if your father is abusing you, that you are to obey in that regard. That is not what scripture teaches. And I believe with everything in me, and we can get to heaven and ask him, that if Paul, if we were living at the same time as Paul, and he found out that you hit your wife, he'd come and beat you. That's what Paul would do. And if our laws were different right now, I'd come and beat you too, all right? But um, I'd get arrested and, and they don't like that. I'd Probably get fired too, if I beat somebody. So these are not trump cards they're not to they're not to justify the abuse of these things also taken in isolation that they're great burdens right i've been raised in a baptist church i have only ever attended baptist churches and i cannot tell you how many millions of sermons i have heard on wives submit to your husbands i have i've heard hundreds and hundreds of sermons not nearly as many as husbands love your wives i have heard that and i understand why that that feels like such a burden to you. I understand that. I understand the same thing with children obey, I understand all of that, but they're not supposed to be taken in isolation. Look, if it's wives obey and husbands love and children's obey and slaves or servants work and bosses respect, that sort of stuff, then it seems like a burden, but it's not. It's supposed to be wives, with all of your intellect and your beauty and your strength, you are to submit to husbands who will sacrifice their, uh, their passions and their dreams and their strengths and even their own physical bodies for your good. And she will submit in love and he will submit in love. And you see, it's like this beautiful dance. And fathers don't exasperate, and children obey fathers that don't exasperate, and fathers don't exasperate children that obey, and it's this dance, and employees and servants serve well and go far and out and above, and, 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 and bosses and masters, you, you be generous and just and kind in the reward. See, it's not supposed to be this individual burden, it's supposed to be this thing that goes together, and when it doesn't go together, it breaks the whole thing. They are not natural. I know in our current post-feminist world that you might feel entitled or empowered to say, that's just not something I want to do. And therefore, because I don't want to do it, then I don't have to do it. And I am telling you, that's not logically consistent. There's a lot of things you don't want to do that you must do. Children don't want to obey. Nobody wants to sacrifice their own for the good of others. But all of it's a command. And the fact that you don't want to do it and it's not natural for us to do does not does not um break apart the command it proves why the command is there all the commands in scripture are telling us things we don't want to do they had to put them in there because we don't want to do them all right no command in the scripture to eat chocolate you know why because we just all do that we never fight that you know it's all of this other stuff and then uh the other thing is just to kind of understand that if you need a summary the way i do all of this can be understood in the idea of self sacrifice That I would self-sacrifice my own independent will for the good of the family. That I would self-sacrifice my own strengths and my own passions and my own plans for the good of the family. That I would understand the things that I, that I would sacrifice my understanding and my wants and my desires for the good of the family. That I would sacrifice my own authority and autonomy for the good of the family. That I would sacrifice illicit gain For the good of the family. All of this is self-sacrifice. And in that we see the gospel. We see the beauty of the gospel. That Jesus self-sacrificed in order to make you family. That because of his sacrifice we can call one another brothers and sisters. And we can say the words, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. So that's the gospel. But you have to accept that. You need to accept that. Or else you're still an enemy and you are not a child. Overall, the idea is that Christ is reflected in the way that we treat one another. All throughout scripture and in the book of Colossians, the idea is that Jesus is the one that we are reflecting. Jesus was submissive. Jesus was loving. Jesus was obedient. Jesus worked hard. Jesus was just in the way that he treated other people. So if you think any of those are weakness, then you have not yet met Jesus. It's not weak. He's sacrificing for the good of the family. That's what Jesus does. That's what Colossians is teaching us. In 127, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of his mystery, which is Christ. That we are to reflect Jesus to the world. Verse uh, 10 from chapter three, you are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. Three, verse 13, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. That's how Paul ends this letter. That's the summary statement of this letter that we would self-sacrifice for the good of our families, our churches and the community and the glory of God. Uh, Dave and Buster's has become like a go-to thing. You know, when you ask your kids, do you wanna, what do you want to do for your birthday? Dave and Buster's is one of the answers that we always get. And it's fun. I like it because I'm a dad. We get to go play games, right? And so we go and we play these games together. And my sons are different, of course, like all sons. And my oldest son, he likes... Uh, he likes problem-solving sort of games, strategy games. That's what he likes to do and, and it'll get you some tickets and such. My second son's athletic so he wants, he, he's always going to the basketball shoot or, or the skate ball or something like that. That's what he wants to do. My third son is anything shiny and loud and um, for only two seconds and so he'll run all around and he'll, he'll get the different things. I like the virtual reality things. I like to load us all up and watch my son scream at a dinosaur chasing us. So that's my favorite because I exasperate my children. But that's what... Um, I like to do. We'll go there and we'll do this and then at the end of it, you know, you go into that room and, and you have your cards and you figure out how many, how many tickets you won, you know. My oldest son, he's good. He's strategic. You know, he'll come in there and he's got like 10,000 tickets. Something like that. My second son will come in there and he's got like 9,000 tickets. It's alright, but he's playing athletic games, so it would be a little less. Third son, he has like seven and a half. He's like, these are my seven tickets and there's half of one. I don't know where it went. You know, it's just, that's, that's how he does. You know, it's the way they are. But we have convinced them to to go in there and you put it all in one pot. That way, nobody has 10,000, nobody has seven. They have 19,007 tickets, right? They have that. And then they'll buy something and fight and argue about something that would have cost me less than five bucks at five below. And all of the pieces will be missing and something will be broken by the time we get back to Conway. That's just the way it is, but it is still a beautiful example of what scripture actually teaches about the family. You come to the table with your tickets and you just push them all in. That's family, all in. These aren't my tickets. These aren't some of my tickets. These aren't some of my tickets and I'll save these in case this doesn't work out. This is all in tickets. We all have our tickets together. And so I put mine in, put yours in. We all put ours in for the good of the family and the glory of God, because that's what shows the world, Jesus. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.